reason they fell is because when Satan enters the garden and he tempts them, he says to them, something in this world is not good. You see, there's a tree that you can't have. You see, there's fruit that you can't eat. And you should doubt the goodness of your God for withholding it from you. And so in doubt, not in faith, the world fell into sin. That belief that God is good and that what He created is good is the foundational faith that we should all have. But as we go about our lives and we experience pain and suffering and evil in this world, we begin to doubt that God is good that what He has created is good, just like our first parents. So what would faith have looked like after the fall, after the sin of Adam and Eve? Well, you'll remember those verses in in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, where Adam and Eve uh, are standing before God in judgment, and the first judgment The worst judgment doesn't befall on them. It falls on the serpent. When God says that the serpent will be cursed, and He concludes His judgment upon the serpent with saying, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Evil will be destroyed. You see, the thing that uh, the faith that would have been there with Adam and Eve after the fall would have concluded two things. God is good, and what He has created is good, and the evil that has entered the world will be crushed. But the promises go on. You see, even after that moment in Genesis chapter 3, what do we read? Evil proliferates throughout the world. It gets worse. It gets darker. It gets so dark that we meet a man named Noah, who, is, who God says, I'm going to destroy the world and only save you and your family, because the rest of the world is evil. And so God saves Noah and saves his family, and then he makes to Noah a promise after he rescues them and brings them to dry land. He says in Genesis chapter 8, I will never destroy the world again. And so now we have more promises, don't we? We have God is good, and what He has made is good. We have God will destroy the evil in this world. And now we have God will never destroy the world again as He did in the days of Noah. That's what faith would look like after Noah. And then we... Fast forward a couple hundred thousand years, maybe a couple hundred or thousand years, and and we meet a man named Abraham. And there God calls Abraham out of the evil city in which he lives, the land of Ur, and he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And we read that great exchange in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham is there childless, and he says, how will you fulfill this promise to me? I don't even have an heir. How can you make a great nation out of me when I don't even have a son? 
My heir is my servant, Eleazar of Damascus, someone who doesn't even come from me. God, how are you going to do this? And we read in Genesis chapter 5, or chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, and he brought him outside, God did, and he says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then it's recorded, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what did faith look like for Abraham? God is good. What he has created is good. That evil will be destroyed. That God will not destroy the world again as he did in the days of Noah. And now we have another promise that God will create a people, a nation from Abraham that will number as the stars in the sky. And that's what faith would look like then. And so then we fast forward several years and and God comes back to Abraham again and they have another conversation and, and God renews the promise to him and he says, not only will your nation bless the, whole, bless the whole world. Will I bless you with a nation? But from your nation, one will come, a seed will come who will bless the whole world. And so now we have a new promise. And then we fast forward more years further into the future, and some of this has come to pass. In each of these situations, though, after each of these promises, things don't get immediately better. Evil continues. But we find ourselves years later, after Abraham's people have been gone to Egypt, they have been committed to slavery in Egypt, they have been delivered by God, they have come back to a land that God has given to them, they have had a series of failed leaders, including the the king that uh, they wanted so badly, until God raises up a king named David. And to that king named David, God makes a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when he says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. So now we have a new promise, an establishment of a king who will raise reign forever. So what would faith look like after this promise to David? That God is good, that what he has made is good, that he will destroy evil, that he will never destroy the world again, that he will create a nation from Abraham that will number as the stars in the sky, 
and that he will set a king over them who will reign forever, an everlasting king. Now, after David's reign, this promise does not come true immediately. Sure, David's son, Solomon, sits on the throne, but his kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom. The moment he dies, civil war breaks out in the nation. The nation splits into two, and they enter a dark phase in their history where it's, it's easy to doubt that the promises will come true. And it's into that doubt that the prophet Isaiah begins to prophesy. It's during this divided kingdom that the prophet Isaiah gives this prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it forever, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God makes another promise in the midst of these dark days of Israel. He says, that king that I promised to David, is still coming. A child will be born. You will see it happen. It will come to pass. The king will come. A child will be born. That's what faith would look like in the days of Isaiah. But then we get further in Isaiah's prophecy. And as you read Isaiah's prophecy, you see that it's not all roses for Isaiah. Before this king will come, there will be judgments on the world, there will be more turmoil, there will be more political upheaval, there will be a judgment on the nation surrounding Israel, and there will be a judgment that will come upon Israel. And we know that even after Isaiah's time, Israel was, was captured by Assyria and Babylon and sent into exile, and it got ugly. It would be easy to doubt the promises of God. But Isaiah continues to prophesy, and here's what he says in chapter 52. Now, as you read this, you'll, you'll notice that if you were here last week, as Pastor Seth preached from Romans chapter 10, you would notice that he quoted this verse in Romans chapter 10. These are the verses that Paul was referring to when he was talking about declaring the gospel to the world. And here's what we read in Isaiah chapter 52. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. What is, he, what is he talking about here? What is Isaiah 
referring to in these verses? Well, he's referring specifically to the watchman who would stand guard at the city gates of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a city that is surrounded by mountains on all sides. And the watchmen here are scanning the hillside. They're scanning the mountain. And they're watching for a messenger. You see, in ancient times and in ancient cultures, when the army would leave the city and go off to war, no one would know the outcome of that battle, of that war, until a messenger came, until someone was appointed to be a runner, to take the news of victory or defeat back to the city. And so the watchman is standing there on the city gate. He's looking out from his watchtower, and he's, he's eyeing the, the hill line, looking for a runner who's coming, who might be carrying the banner of the king. And you can imagine that as he's looking at he he sees a figure appear in the valley pass. He begins to squint his eyes and look as, as closely as he can to see, does this runner carry the banner of the king? And he sees that he does. And so the next thing that he does, he, he wants to know before the runner's even there if he's bringing good news or bad news. And so he watches the runner as he comes down the mountain pass. And he's looking at him intently, trying to determine whether it's good news or bad news. Now, how would he know? How would he know if it's good news or bad news? Well, I don't know about you. I'm not a runner. Okay. I went out running yesterday, sure. I, I, I took a little two-mile jog, all right? Now, when I run, I don't know how you run. I, I see guys like Wheeler and, and Jordan Sexton and, and Jordan Beakley, guys who run marathons all the time, and they are, their legs are flying, right? My legs are not flying. My legs are doing this, the survival shuffle the whole way right? Just trying to get through, okay? Now, Jordan and Wheeler must be carrying good news all the time because you can imagine the runner, if he's carrying good news and he sees the city gates, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to start flying down that road. He's going to be, I can't wait to enter those city gates and declare victory. If he's got bad news, it's going to be the survival shuffle. It's going to take every ounce of his being to get to that gate and deliver the terrible news of defeat. And so the watchman's looking. And as he sees the messenger coming down the valley pass, his feet are on fire. And so he says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace, who declares victory, our God reigns. So in a moment, in his prophecy, Isaiah is about to describe the coming king and the victory that he's achieved. And so what, is the, what does the prophecy entail? We read it in Isaiah 53, and I want you to read it with me. Here it is. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Ladies and gentlemen, 
Behold your king. Behold your king. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment they have taken away and for and, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the, shall the righteous one, my servant, make him to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils among the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's my question. Here's how this king is described. No majesty, no beauty despised and rejected, man of sorrows, someone from whom we hide our faces. He's despised. He is pierced. He is crushed. He is oppressed. He is afflicted. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter. He is buried with the wicked. Behold your king. Behold his victory. Because in the final analysis, what I left out of that description is He takes away your sins. You see, the foundation for our joy in the midst of a wicked world are the fulfilled promises of God. 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in Bethlehem. 
proof to the goodness of God. Proof that what He created in this world is good. Proof that He will crush the head of Satan. Proof that He will never destroy the world again. He will save it. Proof that He created for Himself a people as vast as the stars of the sky, His church. Proof that He will bless all the nations. Proof that God is raising up a king everlasting. Proof that He has forgiven our sins. What was anticipated for thousands of years came true on that Christmas night. Which brings us back to George Bailey, okay, standing on the edge of a bridge, contemplating taking his own life. You see, the second act of that story, things get worse. If you can believe it, after all of these failures that he's endured in Act 1, after all the, the bad things that he's experienced, after the circumstances that has transpired to lead him to that place where he is looking over the bridge, contemplating taking his own lives, believe it or not, things actually get worse for him. If you, if you remember the story, if you've watched it, you know that he's given an opportunity to see his life as if he had never existed. And the movie actually takes on a quality in the second act where it almost comes across as, a, as an episode of The Twilight Zone, almost as a horror movie of sorts. And so for the first 95% of the movie, it's nothing but despair. It's nothing but tragedy. It's nothing but horror. So why is this such a good Christmas movie? Why? Why do we watch it? Why do I watch it? Because the ending is that good. The ending of that movie, the last five to maybe ten minutes, is the greatest moment of joy, I think, in cinematic history. Every time I watch it, even when I just watch it without even watching the rest of the movie, tears well up in my eyes. As I think of the joy of the redemption that happens in those last five minutes. And I can bear the whole movie, the whole two hours and ten minutes, because I know what's coming. So how, why do we persevere to the end as Christians? Why, how can we live and rejoice in an evil world? Because the end is that good. The end is that good. The whole story ends in joy. The whole story ends in joy. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews does something that's very similar to what I've just done here this morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, he begins to walk through the Old Testament, and he begins to highlight all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. He talks about Abel. He talks about Noah. He talks about Abraham. He talks about 
Moses. He talks about Samson, about Samuel, about Gideon, about David. All of the heroes of the faith, all who believed by faith in the goodness of their God. None of whom have what we have, which are the accomplished, fulfilled promises of God in Bethlehem and of God at the cross and of God at the tomb and of God of His ascension who's now sitting on His throne, Christ sitting on His throne as God's King. None of them had that. They just had the promise of it. We do. And so the writer of Hebrews concludes this this discussion of those Old Testament saints who had faith with this. He says, so he says this in, in chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The perseverance that we have, the joy that we have in the face of an evil world comes from knowing that the story ends in joy, for the joy set before us. This season, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances because you know the story ends in joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so gracious to us. We are a people who lacks trust without evidence. What you've created is good. You have told us that from the beginning, and we doubt. We doubt and we begin to think that what you have us in or what you have us going through is not good. And in many cases, Lord, it is difficult. It is a struggle. There is suffering involved. We don't minimize that. But we know that the story ends in joy. And I pray for this people this season that you will remind them that every time they think of Christmas and the promises you kept to send us your King who you have placed on His throne a throne which will last forever. May we serve Him. May we remember Him during this season. Amen.